right, Revelations chapter 21. Today we are again, as I, as I mentioned, we are wrapping up um, our series called Brand New. It's been a blessing. Um, I hope it's been a blessing for you. It's been a blessing for me. Um, I pray that, that if you've missed some of these, um, that you'll go back and that you'll listen to them. You can do that by going on YouTube, all of those sermons online. Um, click on the brand new playlist and you can listen to all of them. Or you can grab the app, download the app, uh, search on Google, search on uh, I iTunes and download the app. And, and you can listen to those sermons, and we encourage you to do so. Um, if you've been with us the last eight weeks, then you probably have heard this at least once. But in this sermon series, we've been using a framework that we borrowed from uh, the book Explicit Gospel, written by Matt Chandler and Jared Wilson. And that framework um, is, shows us two particular narratives or two particular themes that Scripture displays when it is speaking about the gospel. The first theme is the gospel on the ground. That is Christ, God, man, Christ response. God, man, Christ response. God being perfect and holy and being the creator of all things and at the beginning of time sets out to create a universe and everything in it. And at some point he determines to create earth and everything in it. And when he does, he creates man. And when he creates man, man being the second pillar in this theme, man enters into the world in perfect fellowship with God, in need of nothing, and he is given full dominion on the earth over God's creation to exercise authority over it and to work it and to be creative with it and to create beauty in it and to fill it with his own kind. However, out of all of the creation, God gave man one command, and that was this, do not eat of the tree tree of knowledge of good and evil. This tree was in many ways representative of a more simplistic command, and it was this, do not try and take my place. That was the command, basically. Do not try and take my place. However, man was tempted in the garden by the serpent to try and do just that. If you eat of the tree, then you'll become like God. God doesn't want you to become, become like him. That's why he's trying to keep you from the tree. Go ahead and eat it. Eve sees it. She sees, she sees that it looks tasty. She tries it. She gives it to her husband. And, of course, their eyes were opened and sin entered into the world. Now, despite man's waywardness and sin and despite the fact that we deserve God's justice and God's wrath turning our, for turning our backs on him and his law, God did not turn his back on us. Instead, he sent his very own begotten son, Jesus Christ, Jesus, the third pillar in this thing, to, uh, to live the perfect life that we were incapable of living and dying the death we unequivocally deserve so that we might be given the eternal life we most certainly could not earn. But in order to receive this life, it requires us to respond. The fourth pillar, God, man, Christ response. It requires us to respond, to repent of our sins, meaning to turn from living life in accordance to how we want to live it and instead trust Jesus Christ by faith as Savior and Lord and pursue him and his way of living. That's the gospel on the ground. Now, the gospel on the ground is more of an individual story of what God is doing in the world for each and every one of us, but that is not all he is doing, which leads us to the gospel in the air, the second half of our sermon series and where we currently are. Creation, fall, reconciliation or redemption, consummation. We've already covered the first three. Creation was made 
by the very hand of God, and as a result, it was holy and thoroughly good and righteous in every way. However, through man's sin, the fall of creation took place, and everything that was, that was once good and righteous and whole was in an instant tainted by sin. Disasters and disease are a result of the fall. Conflict and war are a result of the fall. Greed and jealousy are a result of the fall. And they all entered the world through our sin. All brokenness in relationships, all ailments in our bodies, all destructive qualities in nature entered the world through the fall. However, Part of the significant work of Christ in dying on the cross is that he is reconciling, or to say it another way, he is changing the relationship between God and all things. God and man, Christ is restoring and changing the relationship. God and creation, Christ is changing and restoring the relationship. The effects of the fall are being reversed, and we are returning back to God's original design and intentions for his creation through the cross of Jesus Christ. By the blood of the cross, God, Christ, has made peace. That's the three pillars that we've discussed so far, which leads us to this morning. What will that look like? And that's called consummation. What will it look like when Christ is finally done? Here's what I can say. It probably will not look like what you were taught as a child. It probably will not look like that. So for the remainder of our time this morning, I want to talk about two things. Number one, what will consummation, the consummation of all things look like? And number two, how should we respond to that reality? Number one is where we'll spend most of our time. Number two is where we'll put a cap on it. First, what will it look like? According to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, consummation simply means the ultimate end. The ultimate end. And so the question that we are asking this morning is what will it look like when the ultimate end comes? What will it look like when it is all said and done? What does the Christian have to look forward to. Here's what we learn as kids. And this is what's so amazing, that for a culture that is so Christianized, it is absolutely wild to me how misinformed our understanding of the end really is. And I think that's for, I think that's for two reasons. One is that we, we, we consume, what we consume in media about the end has vastly shaped what we believe the end to actually be. I mean, we, we, we watch cartoons as kids, you know, the explicit gospel, the book I was mentioning earlier, it talks about many of us, when we think about heaven, we think about a Tom and Jerry heaven. And Tom gets killed, you know, and, and, and in that moment, his body or, or, or his ghost floats into the air, into heaven where there's harps playing and and all of that. And most of us think about heaven, and, and, or many of us think about heaven in, in, in those terms. When we think of the end, many of us think of an experience that's totally separated from our bodies. And we think of an experience where we become angelic beings. And we think of an experience where the only thing that, uh, that we do is stand around the throne the entire time for eternity and sing. 
all of which has been communicated to us, but none of which is unequivocally biblical. We even hear over and over at funerals, and maybe you've even said it to, uh, said it to yourself upon the death of someone. Well, heaven just got another angel. Or Bobby just earned his wings. Neither of which is biblical. Now, I don't want you to be that guy or that gal. I don't want you at the funeral at the end when you guys are eating, eating chicken and, and somebody said that. I don't want you to be that guy or that gal that says, well, you know, actually, Bobby didn't get his wings. That's, that's not the time to try to correct these types of things, all right? That's not what, that's not what we're doing here. But all of the assumptions we pick from culture leads to all sorts of confusion and misunderstanding about what to expect in the end. The other possible reason, though, that we appear to be so wildly misinformed about the end is because we are, we are trying, to learn, trying to learn about the end can be at times overwhelming. I mean, you pick up a book like Revelations, just me saying turn your Bibles to Revelations probably gets you antsy, right? I mean, you're trying to make sense of, uh, just trying to make sense of it can feel like an impossible task, especially when folks want to make every single syllable in the story tied neatly to something happening in our day and in our time and in our culture. And thus it can become confusing and overwhelming. And at times people can just make it downright silly if we're being honest. I can tell you how many times, I can't tell you rather how many times growing up as a kid, the Antichrist label would, would be placed on someone and then taken off someone with no apologies whatsoever. I remember at the turn of the century, there was so much work searching through Revelation for signs and symbols that many people had become thoroughly convinced that Y2K, year 2000, was going to usher in the end. And I don't recall many apologies after those claims. And they were tying symbols and revelations to it and saying, hey, look here, look there, look at verse 1, look at verse this. This is showing us that Y2K is, is coming to, I mean, it's going to be the end. And then Y2K comes and goes. Nobody apologizes. They just keep moving about their day. And that's what happens. You keep digging and digging until the next thing you know, Mikhail Gorbachev is the Antichrist, the son of lawlessness, and the, and the beast coming out of the earth is marijuana. You just, you, you just keep digging until you just find this stuff. So people on this side of the equation of misinformation, to avoid more confusion, just stop looking at the end altogether. They say, it's too confusing for me. I don't want to deal with it. But I don't think we have to fall into either one of those pitfalls. I believe we can look to the Bible to give us some answers about the end while not trying to give an absolute answer on every single symbol that the Bible throws our way. So here's what the Apostle John tells us. Now, one thing we know about John is that John has eternity on his mind when he is writing this last book. John is in the final days of his life. John is one of the last followers of Jesus still standing. John has seen all sorts of persecution. He's been exiled to an island and now near death. And eternity is on his heart. And with eternity on his heart, the Lord gives him this unbelievable vision about the end of all things. As I stated earlier, Folks love to parse all of this book, and sometimes in so doing, they can rob the book of its beauty, particularly when it paints 
really clear pictures for what we can expect in the end. And that's what I want to focus on this morning, the clear pictures that it paints for us. Verse, 20, verse 1 of chapter 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, no crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. What does consummation look like? Verse 5, Behold, I am making all things new. The ultimate end will, or the ultimate end, consummation, means the full restoration of all things, everything being made new. John speaks out of the gates about new heaven and new earth. He is, he is, he tells us in, in, in chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. He's not the only person that speaks about new heaven and new earth. We hear it in Peter. Peter, um, in, in his letter, he says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. One of the last pictures that we hear in the book of the prophet Isaiah is in chapter 65 of Isaiah when he says this, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come, to mind, come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. You hear the parallels? Sounds so much like what John has written in Revelations, doesn't it? A new heaven and a new earth is what's being created, is what consummation means. Now, understand, when we talk about new, we're talking about restoration. What does creation do in chapter 8? It groans. Why? Because it will be renewed. It's why we talk about the resurrection when we talk about us. Why? Because we will be renewed and made new. And so all the things in which God has created will be restored and will be made new. When you think about destruction, don't think about destruction as much as abolition. Think about destruction as like ref refining fires. Like impure gold that hits the heat and becomes pure. Does that make sense? That's what's happening to us. That's what's happening to our world. That's what's happening to everything in the heavens and the earth. New heaven and new earth and new dwelling place for God. This is, this is where God, this new heaven and this new earth is where God will dwell. Not in the sense where he is, he is near us, but where he is fully manifested and among us. 
chapter 21, verse 3, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Not near them, not in some kind of reduced form of sorts, but he will be there in the new heavens and the new earth. He will be there. Isaiah sees the same thing. In that same chapter, chapter 65 in Isaiah, he says this, verse 24, before they call, I will answer, talking about God. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. He, God is saying, I will be near them in such a way that they won't even have to ask for me. I'll be present before they even call. Now, John backs up his statement in, in verse 3 with further detail in verse 22, verses 22 through 26. Look there in chapter 21, he says this, And I saw no temple in the city. It's important. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory, they will bring it, bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. In this new city, a temple is no longer needed. In this new city, a temple will no longer confine God's holy presence. God dwells fully in this place. It is in no need of sunshine because God is the light. It is in no need of moonlight because God is the light. God is giving off the light and lighting up this city. In fact, in verse 16, John envisions, chapter 21, verse 16, John envisions this massive city as about 12,000 stadia or 1,400 miles long. 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles high. That's what 12,000 stadia is. 12,000 stadia long, wide, and high. And people often get wrapped around the dimensions of this and say, well, I don't know if a city can really, you know, be shaped like that and it be feasible. And that's not even the point that John is really ultimately trying to make here. We miss the point, again, by trying to dig too deeply in the design of the most holy place that resides inside of the tabernacle of God, the dimensions were 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. So when you went into the tabernacle and you went beyond the first curtain into the second curtain where the holies of holies re resides, the mercy seat and all of that was there, but that was shaped in a cube. You tracking with this? So God is creating a city, a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and that city will be shaped in the form of a cube. His original dwelling place, the holies of holies, where the priest could only go, the high priest could only go once a year to make atonement for the sins of his, or his own sins and the sins of Israel, was shaped in a cube. What does this mean? It means now 
that the whole city is the most holy place. The whole city is the most holy place set aside for God to dwell. And not just on a certain day, but the whole city is the most holy place set aside for God to dwell every day throughout eternity. And we get a chance to experience that. That's what we are waiting on. That's what we are looking forward to. It's not only a new heaven, new earth, not only a new dwelling place for God, but it's a newfound peace. That's what the consummation means, newfound peace. Because this place is a place where God's presence fully dwells every day for all of eternity, we can expect nothing less but the fullness of justice and the fullness of peace. Isaiah sees this as a place where justice and prosperity will be fully realized. He says it in chapter 65, again, that same chapter, chapter 65 of Isaiah, verse 21, he says, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall, in, shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. They shall bring the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. He says there's not going to be a time anymore where your, your labor is going to be for someone else to exploit. It's not going to be a time where you're going to build and then somebody else move in. It's not going to be a time where you're going to plant and somebody else is going to eat. There's going to be a newfound justice in this new heaven and new earth. Isaiah sees this as a place not just, with, not just for peace among men, but Isaiah sees this as a place as, uh, 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 for, um, as, pe as a place of peace for animals even. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 25, he says, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. He says the animals will live at peace with one another and with us. He says the lion won't need to eat any of you has grass to eat. The serpent won't need to bite. It will have dust to eat. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6 through 9, it says that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them and the cow and the bear shall graze and their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. All of this is happening in this new city, in this new heaven, God's knowledge, and, and, and I'm sorry, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, it says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's knowledge fills this city. God's presence fills this city. Everybody knows him and everyone, everyone is increasing in their knowledge of him. Thus, justice increases. Why? Because his presence is, is there and because his knowledge 
or knowledge of him is increasing. So justice is increasing and peace is increasing. Why? Because his presence is there and the knowledge of him is increasing. Do you understand that? There's new peace. There's new justice. There is new city. There is new dwelling place for God. But there's also new creation. We can't forget about that. Notice that it is not just the people that, we, that will know perfect peace, but the animals, which speaks to the reality that it is a fully restored creation. The people will know peace, the animals will know peace. Remember, again, Romans chapter 8, creation groans. Why does creation groan? It is groaning for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, the full restoration of God's people. Why does it groan for the full restoration of God's people? Because when God's people are restored, creation is restored. And so it eagerly awaits the day for all of God's people to be restored. Joel chapter 3, verse 18, it says, And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water from the valley. Sweet wine coming down from barren places. And for the Southern Baptists in here, I'm sure it is non-alcoholic. Maybe. Sweet wine dripping down from the mountains. Water in places that used to be dry. So God, is cre God in this consummation is bringing restoration to nature. He's bringing restoration to animals. He's bringing restoration to people. He's bringing restoration to um, cities and, and creating new heavens and new cities. This is what we are looking forward to. I love what Matt Chandler in talking about the ideal of this new creation. I love what Matt Chandler in, in the book Explicit Gospel says about the consummation of creation. He says this, my wife and I have been to Southern California multiple times and we eat at a place in La Jolla called George's on the Cove. And if, you, if you're there at sunset, you can see the spectacular view of the sun setting over the Pacific Ocean. As breathtaking as that view is, we know according to the Bible that it is a broken view. It is not what it was meant to be. And as beautiful as it is, as part of this broken world, it is only a pale imitation of the sunsets that once were and the sunsets that one day will be. Can you imagine how amazing the sunsets will be over, over, a, over a restored earth? I don't know if we can. Such a thought is beyond us, this side of heaven, end quote. Take the most beautiful moments that you've ever had in this life. And all of them are no more than the worst moments in, uh, the worst moments in eternity. Do you understand that? Your best moments here, your best views here, your best emotions here. Think about the, think about the best day that you've ever had. Think about the best day that you've ever had. Doesn't compare to any day in any day in eternity. Not a single day in eternity. 
You understand that? Think about the best views that you've ever had. You've, maybe you've gone to the Grand Canyon and you've just, you know, looked at the Grand Canyon. Maybe you've gone down to Destin Beach and you've looked out, the, you've looked out and just seen miles and miles and miles of what appears to be perfect water. Doesn't compare to anything in eternity. Doesn't compare to anything in the new heavens, in the new earth. Why? Because even that is still tainted by fallenness. That's what we're awaiting. That's what we're looking forward to. A new people. We become new. We've said that already, but, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul actually unpacks a little bit of what that means. Let me read a little bit for you. Verse 50, he says, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the, mor and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We certainly realize in this time that we're in, in this season that we're in, how perishable we really are. We realize our mortality. We realize our frailty. Paul tells us that this is only a seed that is planted for the imperishable. That this body, when it is fully functioning, when it is clicking on all gears, it is only a seed that is preparing for the imperishable. If you want to take a, if you want to peek into what this new body will look like, look no further than Jesus. When Jesus was resurrected from the grave, he didn't rise from the grave as Casper. He rose from the grave as a man with a physical body. He went and hung out with his disciples again, and they ate. He cooked fish. They cooked fish, and, he, and they ate. Heaven Tyrone's going to be sla slapping some ribs, right? We're going to eat. We're going to enjoy that. The new heavens and the new earth is going to be, there's going to be good food. Notice that, notice that, what does Joel say? That there's going to be sweet wine. Why does he even mention that? Well, because we're get, we get to enjoy it in the new heavens and new earth. There's still a physical body, and that physical body has put on incorruption. That physical body now knows no perishing. Now, we know Jesus is different when he comes back, Right? One minute he's there, the next minute he's not. He's eating, but, I mean, but the scars are still there. The body's still there, and so shall you be. Again, so when we talk about, you know, hey, you know, when, you know, Mr. Bobby, man, got his wings today. No, Mr. Bobby didn't get his wings today. Do you understand that? You will rise as a resurrected man and a resurrected woman that will know no perishing. In fact, Mr. Bobby isn't even that yet. Do you understand? 
What does Paul say again? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? In other words, death still stings. Do you understand that? Death still stings. It still hurts. It still grieves us. Why? Because the imperishable has not been put on yet. That happens in the end. In the end where every tear is wiped away. Remember John said that? We just read it. Why is every tear wiped away? Because the imperishable has been put on. Why has every tear been wiped away? Because peace is perfect. Why has every tear been wiped away? Because justice is perfect. Why has every tear been wiped away? Because prosperity in nature and creation is perfect. There's no reason to cry tears of sadness anymore. Do you understand that? Instead, that happens, in first, uh, as 1 John chapter 3 tells us, this moment where the perishable puts on the imperishable and death no longer has a sting. John tells us that happens, 1 John chapter 3 verse 2, when he appears. He says, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. That's when the sting of death is forever erased. Let me wrap up here. A couple of things. Number one, oh, before I do that, one more thing. Revelations again, 22. Look at 22, look at verses 1 through 3. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street, of the city, also on the other side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Now pay attention. This is the new Jerusalem. This is the new city. Pay attention to this depiction of this new city. Remember, what, what do we have? We have peace among men, peace among creation. We have flourishing among men, flourishing among creation. Now John tells us we have a river flowing through the city. Now John tells us we have a tree of life flowing through the city. And remember, what else do we have? We have the presence of God unabated. Presence of God moving freely through the city. Does this remind you of another place? It should. It's the place that we began this whole series. It's the Garden of Eden. Do you see it? God, in bringing this story, this story is bringing us back to an Eden, a new Eden, a more glorious Eden even. Notice what happens in this story when we talk about this new garden here in the middle of this grand new city. There's hints of it in verse 1 and verse 3 of chapter 22. John says this. He says that there's something else there in this city, the throne of God and of the Lamb. You see, that's the key. That's what makes this picture all the more glorious. Because of the work of the Lamb, the work of Christ, 
Christ came into the world, lived the perfect life, and because he lived the perfect life, he was able to pay the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. Though he knew no sin, he became sin in order that we might be rescued from sin. And because he rose from the grave with all power and authority in his hand, and, and because he is now seated at the right-hand side of God, there is a new city coming. A new city that will have his throne and his presence resting in its center. We can go back, not just simply to Eden, but we can go back to a more glorious Eden. Why? Because the throne of the Lamb is present. We shall be like him in that, in that moment, for we shall see him as he really is. And that shall be for how long? Forever. Forever. So how do you respond to that? How do you respond to that? You know, I believe, to be honest with you, I believe that we overestimate um, the, we overestimate what we do in this world because we underestimate what's coming in the next. We put so much stock and so much weight in this world because we put so little stock and so little weight in the next. We need to spend time reflecting and meditating on the world to come. You need to spend time reflecting and meditating on the world to come when COVID is ravishing your city. You need to spend time meditating and reflecting on the world to come when your relationships are breaking down. You need to spend time reflecting and meditating on the world to come when you have cancer ravaging your body. You need to spend time reflecting and meditating on the world to come when the job doesn't come through like you thought it would or the bills are still due and finances don't seem like they uh, don't seem to be what you thought they would be. You need to spend time reflecting on that. Why? Because it gives you a picture of what's to come, that the tears will go away, that the struggle will cease, that justice will flourish, that peace will always be present, and that God's presence will be near every single day. You will no longer have to reach for him. He will be there. Now, this truth should not desensitize you to this life. What I mean by that is just because all things are becoming new don't, doesn't mean that the old things don't matter. Are you tracking with that? We can go, grow so committed to the reality of eternity that we start believing that what we experience in this life carries no meaning. And when we do that, then we grow cold to this life and we grow callous towards loss and towards suffering around us in the lives of others. You know, if I had a nickel for every time somebody said, you don't have to cry for them because they're in a better place, I'd be a wealthy man. If I had a nickel for every time I said that to somebody, I'd be a pretty wealthy man. Until I begin to understand that it's okay to grieve. Jesus shows up, has two sisters that are weeping at the death of their brother. Jesus shows up knowing that he's about to heal this guy or, or raise this guy from the grave. He shows up and he knows exactly what's about to happen. 
And yet, the most, one of the most popular verses is found in that moment. And what is it? Jesus wept. He empathized. He grieved. Because that life still mattered, even though he knew he had power to raise that life. Do you understand that? The grief still mattered. The heartache still mattered. The tears still mattered. And so I don't want to paint this picture for you, and then you go away, and you kind of get desensitized to everything that's happening in this world. I still want you to care about this world, but I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope, in the words of Paul. I want you to grieve as those who know that there is a consummation coming where all, where all will be made right once and for all. This truth should help you persevere through hardship, folks. When life gets hard, when the struggle gets hard, when pain is in your body, this truth should help you persevere through that. Paul said that I do not lose heart or we do not lose heart in 2 Corinthians. He says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see that? Paul says, yeah, I'm failing. my body's failing me. Yeah, I'm suffering. Yeah, I'm getting beaten. Yeah, I'm getting thrown in prison. But this light momentary affliction cannot compare to the new heavens, the new earth, the new peace, the new me, the new creation. You understand that? Some of you can some of you need that right now. You need to remind yourself that this light momentary affliction cannot compare to the glory which shall be revealed. Lastly, this truth should drive you towards growing in Christ and trusting in Christ with your life. John said in that same verse that I read earlier, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then he says this after that, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John said, Remember, that you shall be like him, that the end is coming, and when the end comes, all will be made right. Now let that truth fuel your pursuit towards purity. Does that make sense? Let that truth give you strength when you want to say ugly things. Let that truth give you strength when you want to be in places that you should not be. Let that truth give you strength when you want to compromise your integrity, when you want to compromise on God's standards concerning your, your life, concerning your speech and concerning your actions and concerning the, the entertaining of your thoughts, let that truth guide you, the truth that I will be like him one day because I will see him and I will be transformed in an instant. I'm grateful for the opportunity to walk through the grand, grand story of Scripture over the last couple of weeks. I pray it has been a blessing for you guys. Um, and I pray that this truth, this last truth that we have focused on, that it will stay near to your heart, that it will stay near to your heart in the deepest of crisis, in the heaviest of tears, that this truth will stay near. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you. And we give you all the praise and all the...